1: This is the Unplayable Podcast brought to you by Mastercard. And on today's episode, we wrap up the fifth test at the Oval, where England won by 135 runs to square the Ashes at 2-all, which means Australia retains the urn. We'll also recap the entire Ashes tour. And to do that, there is only one person capable and available. It's cricket.com.au senior writer, Andrew Ramsey. Welcome, Rambo.
2: Thank you, Sam. I think availability is the key factor there.
1: Remember, after two months, five tests, three tour games, wins, losses, rain delays, a concussion substitute and one of the most memorable matches of all time, the
2: Ashes is over. It is. And a bit like the World Cup, it ended in a draw. (laughs) but they've had to work, work out a winner and there's a system that works that out too. Someone gets to take the trophy home. Yes, they, I think they
1: get two trophies, don't they? get the, the Waterford crystal and the, the tiny little replica around as well. So they get a, a draw and they get two trophies. What's
2: well, that's the great thing about the Ashes. You always have to say that they've notionally taken them home because you're never No, it's not allowed to leave the Lord's Museum, the actual trophy itself. So no matter what happens, England keep the Ashes.
1: Let's start with our MasterCard moments, as we do always, Rambo. Uh, I'll go first and... Uh, i going to go with Mitch Marsh back into the team at the expense of Travis Head. They went the all-rounder, the Australians in the fifth test match and Marsh celebrated his test recall with his maiden five-wicket haul, bowled with accuracy, bit of pace at times, up to near 90 miles per hour, swing and took five wickets and you could just see how much he enjoyed it and his teammates for a guy that worked so hard. Uh, he thinks Australia pretty much hates him, but uh,
2: maybe he's proved some doubters wrong with that performance. It was a bit of a sort of a heartrending media conference he gave the day that he took those wickets, where he was asked, you know, why people don't like him, and he had to say, I think, you know, you say half of Australia hates him, which is pretty unfair. I think he's an incredibly likable fellow and uh, and a very very good cricketer. As he says, he probably hasn't always seized the opportunities that he's been given, but um, as Ben Stokes has showed, being an all-rounder is uh, it's difficult work. He ended the series unable to bowl because his arm had fallen off and he was so exhausted from his summer that he was uh, struggling to, to put an in innings together by the end. So if Mitch Marsh can be half the player that Ben Stokes is, he'll be a gun. Let's hear from Mitch Marsh
1: now in that great little grab from that press conference.
0: Yeah, most of Australia hate me. <laughs> um, look, Australians are passionate.
1: They love their cricket. Um, they want people to do well. It's no doubt that I've had... A lot of opportunity at test level, and I haven't quite nailed it. But hopefully, they can respect me for the fact that I keep coming back, and I love playing for Australia. I love wearing the baggy green cap, and I'll keep trying, and hopefully, I'll win them over one day. <laughs> Rambo, some nice words there from Mitch Marsh. What's your mastercard moment?
2: Um, from that final test, it was probably a couple of moments. It was like eight overs worth of moments when Jofra Archer was bowling at Matthew Wade after tea. I think, uh, as, as we know, there teammates at the Hobart Hurricanes in the KFC Big Bash League Um, and uh, I think Joffre became a bit upset when Matthew Wade hit him for six like it was Mm. a pull shot that caught a bit of a top edge and but flew into the crowd and that seemed to get him very very fired up and the next couple of bouncers were much quicker than the ones he bowled in the previous few deliveries um and then it was on. For about four overs, he just kept going at him and going at him and there was words and there was staring and there was muttering and there was running down the pitch and they were almost nose to nose, which isn't easy because Archer is about 18 inches taller than Matthew Wade. But it was quite compelling stuff and the crowd got into it and uh, for a game that was like, reasonably done and dusted by that stage, it, uh, it brought a, a last flicker of life to it and it was uh, pretty difficult to look away.
1: Let's give it out. 3-2-1 votes for the fifth test match. Uh, lots of contenders for this one. Jofra Archer was named player of the match for his 6 for 62. Uh, but there were some other standout performances. Matthew Way with his second Ashes century of this tour, 117 for him. Joe Denley made 94 batting in the second innings. Uh good test match for Joe because uh, not only did he get his uh, career best score, he uh, welcomed into the world his second child or daughter, which he missed the, the start of one of the days for. But,
2: uh, and he missed the birth of his first child because he was playing cricket in Derby. Now, I don't even know how you'd reconcile that. So, uh, well done. Congratulations to Joe and Stacey. Maybe he gets a point just for <laughs> for that fact. Uh, uh,
1: Joss Butler, 70 uh, and 47 uh, in this game and also hit... Some fantastic sixes, some real one-day cricket stuff from Joss Butler back to somewhere near his best. Uh, Mitch Marsh got those seven wickets, including that five for 46. Uh, Stuart Broad and Jack Leach took four wickets in England's, in the second innings. And uh, Steve Smith, once again, got 100 runs. He got 103 across both innings, 80 and 23. Uh, so who should we give out the 3 2 one four here, Andrew?
2: Um, well, I think probably just, in terms of breaking the game open and um, setting up the result. I think Jofra Archer was probably, uh, if you take out, even take out his spell against Matthew, Wade, from which he didn't get a wicket. Um, but those six wickets in the first innings, uh, when um, Australia had won the toss and sort of foregone the advantage uh, in a way, uh, that sort of blew the game right open. So uh, for a guy who, playing in his first test series and at the end of the summer, um, that was a pretty special effort, I thought.
1: Three to him. Uh, two and one. This is going to be a little bit trickier. Um, I'm kind of leaning towards Joss Butler because uh, just the fact that the entertainment value. Uh, we were lucky enough to sit outside in the overflow press box and we got a really good sense of the atmosphere. And when Joss was starting to wind up and crank some of those sixes off, Joss Hazwood, who's been hit for some of the biggest sixes in this series for such a class bowler, the crowd was just going berserk.
2: Um, happy to give him two? Oh, I think we probably give him two um, we can, there's always a role it's just England They this melodrama there's always a role for the butler somewhere <laughs> and finally the, uh, the one point Wade Denley Mitch Marsh or
1: some of the England bowlers
2: um, I think you probably have to lean towards Matthew Wade just simply because of the the difficulties that people had had batting him not so much on that pitch but against that level of bowling um, there'd been no one made a hundred in that uh, test up until Matthew Wade went to the The crease on the last afternoon. Joe Denley had got close, but Mm. uh, like horseshoes, close doesn't count. So um, I'd lean towards Matthew Wade, unless you can convince me otherwise.
1: No, I like Matthew Wade. You're right. The only player to score triple figures in this game is second of the series. Uh, Matthew Wade gets the one point. Uh, The turning point. We touched on it very briefly there, Andrew, but let's go into it a little bit more. It's got to be the toss, doesn't it? I mean, I was out in the middle. You were watching uh, from the stands. Everybody was pretty much shell-shocked when uh, Payne called heads. The coin landed heads and, yeah, he decided to bowl first. And a lot of people were just sort of going, sorry, what did he say? And uh, those around him, I mean, I'm pretty certain that 95% of the Australian team, 100% of the England team, and almost 100% of the, the pundits and fans at the ground at that time were thinking the winning captain would have batted first, but then Payne just goes, we're going to have a bowl.
2: Yeah, uh, maybe it was an attempt to wrong-foot them, which lasted for about 10 seconds, and then they right-footed themselves. But uh, As as you know, I was watching through the opera glasses at the time, and Stuart Broad was checking out the pitch, just wandering up and down, and when he heard Tim Payne say, we'll have a bowl, he looked up in astonishment and sort of yelled out to Peter Siddle, and in in incredulity, really, just said, you're bowling. Then Peter said look equally surprised, I have to say, but uh, bold call. Um and history will probably show that maybe it didn't work that well. No, and I mean the reasons why, I mean, the uh they simply was a dry
1: pitch. It did spin late, uh, the footmarks did start to create some trouble. Would have been interesting to see how much they would have played a part if it had gone into a fifth day, we will never know. Um and also the team selection on top of that, uh, Australia went for Peter Siddle to come back in over Mitchell Stark, who ended up bowling quite well by the end of the Old Trafford Test match. Again, those things get under the, uh, get magnified in a loss. But to have Mitch Marsh and Peter Siddle come back in the team, two similar kind of bowlers, same pace, right arm, do a little bit with the ball. Siddle's obviously uh, a much better bowler. But to leave out uh, the variation of Stark, having come off that, that good game at, in Manchester, That was another bowl call that probably didn't go quite the Australians'
2: way. No, no, and became pretty obvious when they were bowled out in 60-odd overs in their first innings and suddenly the bowlers are back out there again and you've got Hazelwood Cummins who've done a power of work throughout the series having to charge in again to have had a fresh, genuinely fast bowler at that point would have been uh, pretty handy, I would have thought. Um, You're right, the two sort of similar kinds of bowlers, Marsh and Siddle, um... And also, I think it was the, it was the only pitch that had a little bit of green grass on it. That may be that trick, Tim Payne. He has admitted he can't read a pitch, um, which is interesting if he's the bloke who's making the decisions at the toss. Uh, but there was a bit of live grass on it, and whether they thought that was going to do something on the first session, first day, uh, that may have swayed it. But uh, yeah, there were some some debatable points out of the before the game before a ball had even been bowled. Yeah,
1: I mean, Tim Payne probably shouldn't review anything. He can't review the pitch. got that one wrong. The DRS reviews. He's admitted that he's got no no idea. He said, you know, we're having a mare. How would he go on something like TripAdvisor or something like that? He wouldn't want to be his Uber driver, would you? Because then he, yeah, he'll just go, well, i was a, got you A to B safely. Two stars.
2: Well, maybe you just, as a captain, one of your jobs is to delegate things. You just start delegating stuff. Like You have a pitch reader. Yeah. He comes with you to the toss and when the coin lands and the yeah, it's like the horse whisperer, he can just put his hands on the surface and say, Well, oh, it's just changed in the last seven minutes, do this. Mm. Or a review whisperer. We'll also put
1: this down as our forgettable moment, I think. Remember the toss and everything that came with that. Um, our unforgettable moment. Uh, not too many out of this game, lots in the series, but the catching was pretty ordinary on day one after Australia did win the toss and bowl first. They put down Joe Root three times and... Quick time, and uh, but then towards the back of the game, they started going to hand, and Steve Smith took a an absolute pearler at second slip to remove Chris Wokes, and then Joe Root took a great one to finish the game to catch Josh Hazelwood out, and put Jack Leach on a hat trick that he'll never get a chance to take.
2: No, I don't think hat trick can survive a test, let alone a series. Uh, so, but there should be something in Ashes folklore for someone who can take two wickets with mm. and then butter up two and a half years later and get one with his first ball. I don't know if Jack Leach will be in Australia when the next Ashes series is played, but it's uh, one for the quirky statisticians. And as far as the catching goes, there were people who said it was a difficult seeing ground. Yeah. Like it's, it's quite low. The terraces are, are quite low. And the uh, Ian Botham said at one stage that he always found it difficult to see the ball, pick it up against the, the backdrop. So maybe if it's a difficult seeing ground, that could be the other explanation for Tim Payne. He was looking at the wrong pitch. And we
1: have seen it once before in this series, Joffre Archer, fire up, he got Steve Smith in a good spell, but uh, again, being out there with the crowd, every ball was just like an event, wasn't it, when Archer was steaming in to wade, and at one point, Ben Stokes was fielding a backstop, he was right on the boundary, right behind the keeper, so the ball could have gone anywhere.
2: Uh, and it was the crowd actually sensed when the uh, the moment came, it was when Archer went down the pitch and... Had a couple of words to Wade after the six, and then he, by the time he got back to the top of his mark, they were already chanting and building to a crescendo. And as he ran into bowls, so they just knew there and then that, and it's almost he rode that wave of kind of crowd support when he started suddenly. He'd been bowling mid 80s, and then, then he went up to 90, and by the end of that spell, he was bowling around 93, 95 miles an hour. So we, if they can crowd and get behind him, they've got a bit of a weapon there. He's a bit of an enigma. A uh, Ratcher, because it
1: sometimes he looks disinterested, looks lazy, but maybe not uh, fully committed. But then in that spell, he just thought right five overs, six overs he might be done. He wants another one. He gets a seventh over, and then everyone thought right seven overs on the bounce, that's him done. Then he gets another over, the eighth over, uh, just shows when he gets in the contest. Maybe that's the best to get out of him, to get him, get him fired up in the contest, and then that's when he starts cranking it up because he hadn't hit those speeds like he had at lords until that
2: spell and he did admit after the game um that he was a bit grumpy yesterday afternoon uh so he maybe there's a lesson there for opposition teams the australians got in his ear a bit at old trafford and gave him a bit of chirp um they throughout the series they've peppered him with a lot of short pitch bowling when he when he's batting so maybe the answer to Jofra is just be nice to him and Try and get him relaxed and happy and he might come in and start bowling medium pace because he's just not full of fire. (laughs) How about,
1: uh, haven't seen that before, Rambo. I'll tell you one uh, that we hadn't seen all series was an English bowling plan to Steve Smith come off. They tried everything, plans A through to Z and chucked in the kitchen sink as well. But they went back to their first plan. They chucked in a, a leg slip uh, bolted his hip and sure enough, all late on day four he's turned one around the corner and hit it straight to Ben Stokes and the plan has finally come off.
2: Is that turning full circle when you just go back to the plan you started with and hope that it, you know, I think I guess that's when you've gone cycled through the entire alphabet and got back to A. Mm. Um, so but that's probably, as Steve Smith said, he's rather hoping they do think that because if teams start doing that to him, he's going to be quite happy. They're going to bolt at his hip and he'll tuck them around the corner and Nine times out of ten, there won't be Ben Stokes there waiting to catch it. So, uh, yes, interesting uh, theory. And you've got to think that's uh, England finally got it right. Finally. Uh, we also saw, which was, uh, I don't think it was actually going to happen
1: at one point, but we saw a 50-run opening partnership in this series. It was not Australia. we averaged just 12.5, which I think is some kind of record low in a Test match series of more than five innings or something like that. Uh, it wasn't good for the Australians, uh, but England managed to get there. They put on uh, more than 50 uh, in the second innings in the, this game, and it's been tough work for the openers. I didn't think we'd get there, but we did see um, them shake hands mid-pitch, uh, Burns and Denley, and uh, put on a 50-run stand.
2: You remember back to all those Ashes series of past when you know, Australia's openers battered the entire day, and the, there was 250, 300-run partnerships to not to get 50, and the Australians, with their openers, didn't make it to 20 throughout mm. five tests for an opening stand. So it just shows you how dominant the new ball was. So maybe yeah, in the comparative index, that 50 that uh, Denley and Burns put on was probably worth 300.
1: Yes, 54 between Burns and Denley. And the final thing we haven't seen before, uh, this is actually the, uh, the latest Ashes test match in England in Ashes history. And we were blessed with... Brilliant sunshine, wasn't it? We were sitting in the front row. Uh, people can't see you because this is a uh, um, a podcast, but you are sporting a lovely tan, Andrew. Uh, and we copped a lot of sun, and for four days it was pretty much perfect weather.
2: It was actually quite hot there, for I wasn't it? sitting in the direct sunlight in the morning, it's a bit like covering cricket in the Caribbean mm. um, with the the sun beating down. And a, end of well, it wasn't really the end of summer; it's early autumn weekend. It was people were in festive spirits. It was uh, quite. Glorious, sitting out there, um, and certainly a, a marked change from Manchester, where if we'd been sitting outside on oh. day one of the first test there, we may still be in hospital, <laughs> frozen.
1: Uh, a rapid stat:
2: that's the first time,
1: and this is a quirky one. This is the first time in history, in test history, that a team has taken twenty wickets, with the bowlers who took ten in the first innings not taking any in the second. So Archer, Sam Curran, and Chris Woakes combined for ten, six, three, and one. And then Broad, Jack Leach, and Joe Root, the captain with two wickets, 4-4-2. Four, four, and the evening, it's never happened. They really did share the workload, I guess, in that test match. I wouldn't have picked that. That's
2: one that would have got by me, and I'm normally pretty on top of all those. The, especially the research team. Where have, where have they been? I think they're still in Derby. <laughs> no one ever gets out of there easily. No, especially if, even if you've got a, a kid on the way. That's right, you can't get out.
1: Uh, Payne, uh, Tim Payne is the second Australian captain to win the toss in England in an Ashes Test match and lose. Rambo, you were there for the the first time?
2: Um, Was that 1902?
1: Uh, Just after that. Oh,
2: 2005. The second series. At Edge Baston. Yes, Ricky Ponting spent much of his life defending himself against that decision when uh, not only had they uh, decided to send England into bat, but he lost his best bowler an hour before the coin went up. Glenn McGrath went over with an ankle injury. So Ricky's... Been telling everyone for the the last fourteen years that he th- still thinks he got that decision right. So I look forward to hearing Tim Payne spend the next decade or so saying the same thing. Well, I think he's already admitted that he got
1: it wrong, didn't he? So if we could take one thing back, <laughs> it might be the toss. So uh, I don't think we'll be hearing any uh, staunch defence from Tim Payne. Uh, Warner Blake series for Warner ninety five runs in. Test in ninety-five runs in ten innings, uh, out seven times to Stuart Broad all round the wicket. Uh, that's the equal most dismissals by a batsman to one bowler in a series.
2: Just, just got in his head. Couldn't get, couldn't get past Stuart Broad. No, I, I think we mentioned that uh, in the previous podcast. It was shades of you know, Adam Gilchrist and Andrew Flintoff from two thousand and five, and I think uh, Justin Langer might have made that point after the game. Are um, you? At the start of the series, even though he's coming back from an obvious absence from test cricket, you would have probably penciled David Warner in for 100 somewhere during the course of the campaign. The fact that he didn't get there in aggregate is quite astonishing, really. Mm -hmm. Um, It just goes to show how dominant Stuart Broad was and how, by the end of it, um, you just sense that David Warner just... Didn't had run out of answers, so he didn't know he was changing his guard, he was changing his position on the crease, he was batting further out out of his crease, back in his crease, attacking, not attacking, trying to leave the ball, and even then he was getting out, so it was uh, the one that he'll probably want to forget, but I think he may see some highlights over the journey for the next few years. Especially over here in
1: England, uh, Steve Smith broke heaps of records. One thing on Steve Smith, he actually hit more boundaries than want to hit runs. In the series, so that just shows how dominant one player was and how how much the other one struggled. Uh, Smith, seven hundred and seventy-four runs in this series, the fifth most in an Ashes series. Uh, He actually has set a new world record for consecutive fifty-plus scores uh, against a single opponent with ten, eclipsed uh, al Hux's record of nine against England. Uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, absolute run machine. I mean, Smith broke countless records. He got twin hundreds in the first test match, first since 2002, first in England by an Australian since 1997, which was Steve Waugh. Um, He's just being compared more and more to Don Bradman. He's still got about 33 runs to catch up to get to the Don's mark. Um, An incredible series by Steve Smith. I think we've said it a lot, but is there anything else
2: left to say? I think all we can say is imagine if he'd played every test. Yeah, that's, that's the what other those point. numbers would be then. He missed three innings, so uh, we can only speculate as to what might have happened, but uh, he didn't look like getting out up until that point, and he didn't like getting out when he came back, so he, we just can only assume that he wouldn't look like getting out if he'd played. Mm.
1: And a lot of the time, I think we spoke about it, the in those first five innings in particular, he got himself out, really. I mean, he was batting with a tail, slogging, or he'd still be suffering the effects of, of that uh, that blow at the back of the neck by Jofra Archer. It was only sort of in that last game where uh, he missed a straight run from Chris Wakes and then got caught around the corner. So an incredible series by Steve Smith, and he was the uh, the player of the series. The, was it Compton Miller Compton
2: Miller Miller. Compton Miller medalist. Say that 10 times fast. Uh,
1: what does it all mean? Uh, it means Australia retain the ashes uh, to all. Uh, first time Australia has retained the ashes in England since 2001, but they still haven't won a series since that 2001 uh, campaign led by Steve Waugh. Um, England and Australia are now even on the World Test Championship table, which I can exclusively reveal. Uh, with India on top on 120 points, New Zealand on 60, Sri Lanka 60, and then England and Australia, fourth and fifth on 56. So even though uh, New Zealand and Sri Lanka series finished one all, they've got 60 points each, and England and Australia having won two tests each and a draw, they're on 56.
2: It's one of those little very crickety statistical quirks, isn't it? Mm. The, uh, England, Australia, and India have all won the same number of tests under the World Test Championship point system. England and Australia would have 48 points from their two wins. India have got 120 points from their two wins. Mm. So I think we'll just leave that there. Yep. not sure how that's going to work out.
1: Uh, <laughs> I actually spoke to Ricky Ponting about the um, two-all the result uh, late on day four. Here's a little bit of what Ricky had to say.
2: Oh, I think they'd have to look at it as a, a series of probably missed opportunities, um, I think you know. I think they've clearly been the better team. They have clearly played better cricket through the series. Um, you know, they should have won at Headingley. If Warner catches Stokes pretty early on at Lords, I think they probably would have gone on to win that game as well. Um, so yeah, I, that's the way I think they'd look at it. Two two two, I think would would be would not be a fair reflection of this series.
1: Ricky Ponting said it was a series of missed opportunities. Remember, how do we reflect? On this Ashes, there was so much build-up. This has been years in the making, this Ashes series for Australia, going back to using the Duke's balls at the back end of the home summer in the Sheffield Shield competition to that intra-squad game at Southampton where 25 of the best players Uh, were all there together playing in a game. Um, Just the, the analysis, the money, the support staff. I mean, Steve Wall was here for four of the five test matches. There was no stone left unturned for the Aussies. To come away with two-wall, Justin Langer said it was a hollow feeling for him. How do we sort of sum this up? I mean, they retained the urn, but they didn't win it. Um,
2: No, so you you have to say that if their uh, ambition was to not lose the Ashes, which they've done every time they've been here since 2005, then it's a success. Uh, You wonder about the Duke's ball in domestic comp, given that apart from Steve Smith, who rarely faced the Duke's ball in domestic comp, uh, the batter seemed to struggle against it, um, but certainly the the key to having those all those fast bowlers up and going at once and providing uh, like a a pool of available quicks as well as um, competition for spots, because it was the bowlers that really got them over the line. Wasn't it? But if you take Smith's batting out, there wasn't much else. So it was the bowling group that did the, a lot of the the hard work. So that paid off. Whether they can replicate that blueprint again i'm not really sure given the amount of logistical work that went into it and australia A tours and guys coming over to play county cricket beforehand a lot of those things would have to fall into place. This was a bit of a, a perfect storm in a way so they probably would be disappointed if they didn't win the series but at the same time they get to take the urn home even though they don't get to take the urn home
1: mm. i wonder there was so much focus and time money resources everything put into winning the ashes uh, Justin Langer said that his big achievement is to win in India which is a couple of years away I wonder if now sh- the the test team focus shifts to that I wonder if we'll see um, tweaks made to the first class competition or the way they're to prepare or f- future tours with Australia Ray and uh, development tours does that now shift towards Anaya winning in India and how do they go about doing that because Langer was part of the last team to do it in 2004, it's not quite uh, two thousand and one, but they're desperate to win over there. They got close in twenty seventeen. uh in many respects they probably should have won that series, but I wonder if that's gonna be the focus now for this test. So they talk about cycles. Twenty twenty one is the next uh was the end of the test championship. But I wonder if they look beyond that and say, Righto winning in India, the final
2: hurdle, the final frontier. Um could be like they've mentioned already that their focus domestically turns to T20 cricket a bit now because of the looming World T20 in Australia, both the women's and the men's um, next year. So that'll be a focus for a while. Um, the other thing about India is it's probably, it's not as easy to prepare for because they're not, India you would normally go there and you'd face turning pitches and very good spinners, but now they've got very good seamers. Mm. So the pitches have changed a bit um, with you. The trick is as in England to get the bowlers to be able to, adapt to those conditions and just hope the batters can find a way. Um, If you've got bowlers who can get reverse swing or bowl uh, sort of containment lengths and tie down batsmen in India where it can be very fast scoring, maybe that's the same template as they brought here. Um, But replicating those conditions anywhere other than the subcontinent is pretty tricky. So uh, I'm sure there'll be no stone left unturned, but um, there might be a couple of other things that crop up before then that occupy their thinking. All right, let's do our Ashes recap. Rambo, um, when you sort of break it all down,
1: Australia and England have played each other uh, seven times in uh, this summer over here. Five times in the Ashes. Two all of the draw. Twice in the World Cup. One each. England probably had the breaking rights there by winning the semi-final. So at that point it's three each and then uh, maybe the decider is the World Cup warm-up game that Australia took out right at the very start. So do we give a uh, Australia, the uh, the points here?
2: 4-3? Well, I think as we've seen this summer, northern summer, you need to have some sort of count-back <laughs> system to decide things that can't be otherwise decided. So that's as good as any. Um, and I don't think that uh, you could argue that England has had a triumphant summer, but mm. they won the World Cup even though they finished the final on the same score. But they lost the Ashes even though they finished the series on the same score. So there that's kind of the universe leveling things out isn't it it's one of those
1: crickety things isn't it uh okay best innings of the of the ashes can't go past ben stokes that 135 not out to drag england across the line in one of the most incredible test matches anyone has ever seen Uh, that's got to go up against one of the steve smith hundreds he got two at Edgbaston, one at old trafford that 211 uh, he said that his favourite was the 144 in the first innings in Birmingham, and when Australia were well, 822, he put on some key partnerships with Peter Siddle and Nathan Lyon. So I think we go. It's either the 144 from Smith or the 135 from Stokes. It's going to be hard to split them. Do they share it, or can we give the edge to someone
2: here? Um, they'd almost have to share that. I'm going back to the. I don't know what the tiebreak system would be there for yeah. those, but they both. Set up match. So both Stokes is probably. You think of the context. It was he had no backstop there, did he? Like he was the uh, last man standing and had to go for everything because you, know, you didn't know how long. And that's the other innings that maybe we should mention. Jack Leach's one. Yes. Because if without Jack Leach's one, Ben Stokes wouldn't have got to his hundred and thirty-five. But um, if I was probably going to pick one, I'd probably have Stokes a nose in front simply because of the what it meant in the game context and the fact that if England had lost that test then the series was done. So sorry, Steve. Sorry, Steve. Fantastic series, Steve. But
1: uh, Stokes gets that one. And I mean this this is the shot of the series, that incredible switch hit off Nathan Lyon and they're all nine down and he miss hits that. It's game
2: over. And this thing he didn't hit miss, miss hit one of those, did he? And for the rest of the series there was a few he struggled to you find the middle of the bat, in fact, um at one point. He was uh, getting clearly frustrated because he was uh, trying to play some big shots and they were falling into gaps between the fielders. And he was almost like, well, I wish I could hit this properly or get out. But uh, he just seemed to have that magic ride for the whole summer. Best spell of bowling.
1: This series was dominated by the bowlers, even though we're talking about the, the records of, of Smith and the, the achievements of Ben Stakes with the bat. But uh, bowlers, five bowlers took 20 wickets in this series. Uh, best spell of the lot. Actually, we're looking at some that didn't actually take any wickets after all. I mean, Joffrey Archer's spell at Lords, that was just as pulsating as it gets in Test cricket. And um, even though it didn't get Steve Smith out, it it played one of the really significant um, blows of the series because it curtailed him. He only made 12 more runs after that, after coming back, and then ruled him out of the second innings and the next Test match, the Test match at Henningley, which England won. So... That was an incredible spell of bowling. Um, 95 miles an hour did we get up to 96, which is about 155, 156 uh, on the kilometres per hour uh, in scale.
2: pound, shilling and pence. Um, and a lot of that, not so much the the day that he hit Steve Smith, but his other spells at Lord's, it was sort of under dark cloud with the floodlights on it looked even more menacing mm. um, in those conditions and it did in bright sunlight at the Oval when he finished the series with a similar bang. Pat Cummins bowled a tremendous spell either side of tea at
1: Henningly. Uh again, no wickets, created chances, but was always at the batters, always been in the bat. Cummins took 29 wickets in the series. Uh, pick of the bowlers, you'd have to say. Um, he just goes from strength to strength. Pat Cummins, is the number one bowler in the world by a fair distance now. And um, I think he's on, according to the official rankings, he is tied with Glenn McGrath on the highest rating points. So we're still waiting for that update. He might officially become the... Uh, at one point, the best Australian bowler in history, which would be some achievement at just 26, and he's after 25 Test matches, no Australian fast bowler had taken more wickets than Pat Cummins, 123. So, what a breakout series from him! But that spell at headingly just showed why he's so good. Without even taking a wicket, sometimes you don't have to take a wicket.
2: Apparently, like it's uh, there's often the way, isn't it? You get someone bowling out well, and then someone cleans up at the other end because mm. of the pressure that's been applied. But he was uh, extraordinary, Pat Cummins. I don't know how he ran in and bowled as many. Deliveries into the wicket as he did, just and still in his last spell of that last test, he was getting it up, head height and above. Um, must have taken a lot out of him. Hope he's having a rest somewhere.
1: 211 overs for Pat Cummins in the series. That's the most uh, by an Australian fast bowler this century, and out of uh, since he made his comeback in March 2017, no fast bowler in the world has bowled more overs at national level than Pat Cummins. So for a guy that spent six years on the sidelines dealing with various injuries, he's come back and become Australia's not The
2: bionic man. Yes. That old series from the 1970s when they rebuilt him. Like, they spent six years rebuilding him and now he's unbreakable. Well, yeah. And uh, I think Justin Langer
1: said in the Lords test match it wouldn't be humanly possible for one of his fast bowlers to play all five test matches and then Josh Hayes would call him the machine. So maybe he's not human there might be something in that we might need to leave that to
2: the sports sides people to explain
1: and finally wrap out the best spell uh england all out for 67 we kind of forget that that england were actually rolled for 67 and went on to win that game in leeds um that was just extraordinary watching we were there four years ago to watch australia get rolled for 60 that all happened in eight and a half overs this one lasted a little bit longer but that was just one of those days where there were no playing misses. They just nicked everything.
2: And David Warner caught most of them too. Like mm. he, had, uh, it was just, The ball seemed to just have a magnetic track to his hands. Slip. It slipped. Uh, um, at that point, you couldn't see how England could possibly wriggle out of the, the match and the series. So, um, yes, it was not a spell of bowling, but it was a spell of cricket that was uh, fairly compelling and decisive. we given this to Archer? I think so. And... He just, you know, and if for no other reason than it was his first Test series. No one knew if he was going to be able to transition from white ball cricket, which he's clearly very good at, to red ball cricket, which he hadn't played for a year. As was much was made of that coming into the Test. This guy hasn't played any first class cricket. How's he going to go? Will he get through a series? Can he bowl in the uh, in Test match conditions? I think those questions are pretty well answered and pretty quickly. Exciting, uh, exciting out I suppose, coming up for uh, the
1: fast bowlers. Where well, you got Cummins. Chahissa Rabada and Jofra Archer all running around doing their thing at the same time. It's going to be a tough decade for batters, you'd have to think. Especially and Jasper Bumrah and Bumrah. How could I forget Bumrah? Yes, um, exceptional bowler as well. Okay, best catch. This is this might be the hotly, the most uh, hotly contested of the categories. We'll go through them really quickly. Smith at the Oval, We've talked about that one. Uh, Joe Dinley at Lords to take um, to dismiss Tim Payne off Jofra Archer that bouncer. He's diving. He described it as a, like a soccer goalkeeper uh, saving a penalty. That was um, just brilliant uh, in the sunshine there on the last day. Uh, David Warner at Headingley, he took um, we well, took six catches in that game. Uh, the one that stands out for me is the um, is the one off. Joe Root, where he's come down the wicket, chipped it into his pad, gone over the top of Tim Payne, setting up the stumps. Warner's dived to his left at first slip and taken it, two hands behind Payne, and he got up and celebrated accordingly. I thought that was fairly impressive. Uh, Cameron Bancroft uh, to take, uh, took a great catch to dismiss Joe Burns at Lord's, where he's uh, it's gone low to his left. He's reacted, somehow just parried the ball up and then scooped it before he could hit the ground. I mean, what does Steve Wall call him? The greatest bat pad ever or bat ever.
2: short leg ever yeah, Steve did spend a lot of the two hitting catches to him in training so he should know he took some credit for
1: that one no doubt uh, Peter Siddle took a great one handed return catch from Joe Root in the first test match uh, reflex catch of his own bowling and then Matt Wade a uh, bit like Bancroft uh, took one um, onto his chest uh, caught the deflection uh, low to his right just millimetres off the ground. Uh, lots of great catches in this series. I'm sure I've forgot one, no doubt, but uh, out of that half a dozen or so, which one's going to get the cake here, Rams?
2: Yeah, very good question. Um, probably for the situation that the match was in, probably the Warner catch-off route at Headingley because mm-hmm. that, at that point that seemed like that was the game. England had presumed on that last day chasing a, a mountain of runs and Root and Stokes were... The general thinking was if they were going to get anywhere close to that amount that those two would have to bat for most of the day because England didn't have much going for them afterwards given they'd been bowled out for 67 in the first innings. Um, So for him to take that catch, get rid of Root, it seemed to pave the way to a a victory that never arrived. Finally,
1: well, I'm going to go with Denley. That was just, I think that was incredible. And there was a packed house at Lords. They're Probably out of the five venues the most reserved crowd but they were really, really loud and we're sitting in the in the, uh, the spaceship media centre. There are laws which doesn't quite always capture the atmosphere or the sound of the crowd but that was a huge roar that even penetrated that vacuum. It was just... That was extraordinary but again, out of those six or so, probably isn't a clear winner so
2: we'll split it. But Rory Burns will be a couple of screamers as well. Rory right, Burns, yes. That's a good, right. good pair of hands. I mean, most of them are only taken with one of them. I think with the way this series is, this campaign has gone it's
1: only fitting that we split or share most of these awards that's right all right there's no countback back for catches. <laughs> finally the uh, the best player of the series with a surname not starting or ending with s so that rules out smith stokes and cummins we know how good they are but sort of the next tier down who was the, the, the best player
2: in your eyes rams uh probably have to be joffra yep i think um he didn't make any runs, and there's always been some talk that he can bat a bit. He can show that he can hit the ball a distance, but his bowling was just next level. Um, and again, because it was his first test series, um, young guy, very quietly spoken, looks like he's, as you say, uh, never quite sure if he's switched on or not, but when he is, he's pretty hard to uh, imagine a, a more exciting fast bowler in world cricket, to be honest.
1: I want to go the other end of the spectrum and go with Stuart Broad uh, in what could be his last Ashes series. Uh, broad took 23 wickets and just ran right to Australia's left-handers from around the wicket. I mean, can you recall a bowler having such dominance not only over one batter, David Warner, but just felt like every time he was coming around the wickets, whether it be Harris or Head or Wade, he was just always in the game. New ball, old ball, didn't matter what day of the game it was on. He just felt uncomfortable as, as an Australian batter out there facing him, he just, he's just so crafty. He's sort of evolved his game as he's gotten
2: on and developed new skills. Uh, he just talked a bit at the start of the series about what he'd done to improve his bowling around the wicket and uh, that's obviously paid off because he was unplayable. The other thing with these guys who have you know, nemeses, as they like to say, um, you, know, you think Shane Warne and Daryl Cullinan, and, but that would always depend on if Warne was bowling when Cullinan came to the, the crease. This was... First ball of the innings, you know, Warner was taking strike. Broad had the ball, so you just knew it was on. From the, uh, you just, it was, you just sat there and watched it, and it normally didn't take long. You um, started to have that feeling of inevitability about it that it would be the first week, the first over, Broad would bowl to Warner and he'd get him out, and uh, more often than not, it happened.
1: All right, we're done. Remember, that's it. The ashes are over. This podcast is over. Uh, what are you going to do now?
2: Well, I'm tossing up between whether I just go and have a kip or whether I go and have a kipper. Uh, I'm thinking I might do the former because the latter is horrendous.
1: Fantastic. Well, that is it for today's episode. A big thank you to MasterCard and to you, Rambo, for coming on uh, for this tour. A big shout out to Paddy Horan and Mike Morris back in Australia for all their help and support uh, over the summer here. We'll be back in November ahead of the Domain Test Series against Pakistan. So until then, for all your cricket live scores, breaking news, and video highlights, head to cricket.com.au and the CA Live app.